It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tonight on The Readout. Justin Pearson wasn't white. That's probably how he got into Bowdoin in the first place. But he did a fantastic impression of it. He transitioned from a crypto white kid into the modern incarnation of Martin Luther King Jr. himself. It's remarkable, really. You never see politicians transition into, say, Malcolm X. Why is that? Maybe because Malcolm X didn't talk like a sharecropper. Huh. That kind of racism, division, and dishonesty is exactly what Fox CEO Rupert Murdoch wants for America. And on Monday, the trial begins in the Dominion defamation trial, which shows how Fox hosts lied to their audience and riled up the MAGA right in the run-up to the January 6th insurrection. In a moment, the former prime minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, joins me. He once said Murdoch has done more to undermine American democracy than any other individual alive. And later, The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper returns to the readout, and he has a lot to say about Clarence Thomas, Trump, Ron DeSantis, and more. And we begin the readout tonight with the landmark case against Fox. In roughly 72 hours, 12 jurors and 12 alternates will finally begin to hear the case in which they decide if Fox and its anchors defamed Dominion voting systems using actual malice by knowingly falsifying and recklessly disregarding the truth. When the right-wing network aired conspiracy theories about Dominion's voting machines supposedly stealing the 2020 election. While Fox has insisted they did not act with actual malice, they have faced a string of embarrassing revelations that have exposed their hosts and supposed news anchors as pure propagandists. But evidence suggests that they knew they were amplifying the big lie and undermining American democracy. Make no mistake, this $1.6 billion defamation suit is the biggest crisis to threaten the multi-billion dollar company since its inception. Fox's corporate overlord and real-life Logan Roy, 92-year-old Rupert Murdoch, oversees a global media empire that has earned billions of dollars, often by pumping racism, misogyny, and outright lies into conservative audiences in Europe, in Australia, and here in the U.S., with zero regard for the havoc it has wrought around the world. Fox has been the crown jewel in Murdoch's empire and has granted him exceptional power to shape public opinion, which he has chosen to do mainly by monetizing hate. Here's just a taste of what his hosts routinely mainline directly into the brains of their viewers. We've got people being hold, hold released it, from the border right name. now who've got COVID. Wait a minute. Let, I kids. listen to you. You listen to me. They've got COVID. They've got all kinds of diseases. They are being released into the United States. White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax, just like the Russia hoax. It's a conspiracy theory used to divide the country 
and keep a hold on power. It is a plot to remake America, to replace American citizens with illegals. Democrats believe that old ladies walking through the halls of Congress taking selfies are a bigger threat than murderers and repeat violent offenders. Is there anything you could have done to get the kind of coverage that Kamala Harris is getting now? I would not have... um uh, prostituted myself in terms of changing any of my positions in order to garner better press. It's the same reason she started out her political career as Willie Brown's bratwurst bun. Kamala Harris will do anything to get ahead. Sydney, we talked about the Dominion software. I know that there were voting irregularities. Tell me about that. Let's put it mildly. Feel free to take out the brain bleach. The Dominion case has also exposed how deeply involved Murdoch is in the editorial direction of many of his companies. In his deposition for the case, he admitted that he is, quote, a journalist at heart and likes to be involved in these things. In that same deposition, Murdoch acknowledged under oath that he could have told Fox chief executives and his stars at any time to stop lying about the 2020 election and to tell their viewers the truth that Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden. But he chose not to. Why? because they didn't want to alienate their audience by telling them the truth or make their advertisers, who sometimes double as guests, like the MyPillow guy, mad. In short, it was all about profit, but also about ideology and ego. Sitting atop his perch as the head of this right-wing media empire, Rupert Murdoch has unfettered power to shape the world in his image, a world that is anti-abortion, for big business and tax cuts for the wealthy, and scornful of social change. This chaotic poison is designed to be this way, and it has real-world consequences. The man who tried to crush Capitol Police Officer Daniel Hodges on January 6th said he was radicalized by watching Fox. He was just sentenced to more than seven years in prison. He's not alone. A string of January 6th defendants have accused the network of infecting them with misinformation or downright brainwashing them. And make no mistake, Fox executives understand how serious the Dominion case is. One senior Fox staffer told Vanity Fair, if we lose this suit, it's effing bad. Malcolm Turnbull, the former prime minister of Australia and a former journalist himself, has known Rupert Murdoch for more than four decades. He has accused his fellow Australian of doing more to divide America than Vladimir Putin has. In his own country, Murdoch's News Corp has a roughly 60% share of circulation. 60%. Mr. Turnbull is heading a campaign that calls for a royal commission, Australia's highest form of public inquiry, into Murdoch's media dominance. He recently launched a podcast called Defending Democracy with Malcolm Turnbull, which examines whether Western democracies are in decline. And Malcolm Turnbull, the former prime minister of Australia, joins me now. Thank you, sir, for being here. Great to be with you. So you called Rupert Murdoch <clears throat> the most dangerous, uh, more dangerous than Vladimir Putin uh, to American democracy. How so? Well, there is no individual alive that has done more to divide America than Rupert Murdoch. I mean, Fox News is, is the dominant cable news service. It, its business model is to make people angry. It is really angertainment. Uh, they have no concern about the truth. I mean, the lie about the stolen election was the most dangerously consequential lie told in American politics in, our, in any of our lifetimes. I mean, you, your country was founded on a 
armed insurrection against illegitimate government. Mm -hmm. That's what the Tea Party was all about. And so there is Murdoch and his crew telling Americans that their government, Joe Biden, the president, was illegitimate. Saying that to the American people is like it's like screaming out fire in a crowded theatre. Yeah. I mean, they, they, he, he did that knowing that it would have terrible consequences. And I mean, he, the thing is that Fox News has a, a hold legitimately on a percentage <clears throat> of the public. Um, we were talking before, before the, the show came on about the fact that it is this sort of inverse proportion of power, right? That the electorate, the, the audience at Fox is 90% white. It's majority white. It's overwhelmingly white. It's heavily male. Very old. Um, and it is the part of the electorate that is losing its grip on national politics. It's very hard for Republicans of that mindset to win a presidential election or to win even a statewide election or a referendum on things like abortion or gay marriage, et cetera, which are more popular now in the United States. But even though they decline in terms of electoral power, that grip gets tighter and the the content gets more far right. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I think in many respects, what you see is Murdoch has an audience that's large enough for him to monetize, but it, it doesn't represent a constituency that's large enough to win national elections. Uh, we see the same thing in Australia. Yeah. Uh, we've seen centre-left uh, governments and parties, the Labor Party, winning elections despite ferocious attacks from the Murdoch media. And the, that, I think, is because of this very phenomenon. I mean, the the paradox is that the centre-right political parties, which I which I yeah. used to lead, the Lib- which is called the Liberal Party in Australia. I know that's confusing <laughs> to Americans, but yeah. it is the centre-right party, so like the British Conservatives. Yeah. Um, but the Murdoch's influence over the centre-right and indeed over the Republican Party, although question whether there's a lot of centre in the right yeah. there, but his influence over those parties is greater than ever, but the influence over the electorate is less because, as you say, uh, that audience is become is becoming a smaller and smaller share of the electorate, and are becoming radicalized. I mean, you have January six defendants saying they were radicalized by watching Fox News, and that's all they watch. And for a lot of people, Pew Research will say it. Mm. You know, they are the most trusted among their viewers, and they won't watch anything else. They only watch that. It's, it, that's a really radicalized is absolutely a concept to hang on to. So John Cohen, who's one of the people I interviewed in the podcast that you referred to earlier, is a homeland uh, security expert here in the United States. He's worked for the FBI. He's worked, you know, keeping America safe against extremism all his life. And he describes the the radicalisation of right-wing media, of which Fox is the largest part, as being so similar to the radicalisation of people like ISIL and al-Qaeda the same techniques they used on young Muslims, particularly young Muslim men. And so so essentially you've got now a media audience that is in silos. See, see, when I I first got to know Rupert Murdoch in the 1970s, would you believe, uh, to have a media business you had to reach a broad range of viewers because to maximise the audience for your advertising and so forth. And a combination of, you know, technology and other things has enabled you to actually narrow cast now. And so yeah. now we've got people living in silos. And so if you are just following right-wing media, if you're following, you know, Fox News, if you're living in that bubble, uh, and that is where, regrettably, so much of right-wing politics is going on, then 
sure, you can believe that, you know, Donald Trump won the election. You yeah. can believe that, you know, the Democrat part, Democratic Party is run by Satanists and yeah. all of these this crazy stuff. Yeah. And that, of course, creates the environment which leads to extremism. And the tragedy is that this great country upon which every person who believes in freedom in the world today depends on... Yeah is more divided than it's ever been, yeah. I guess, since the Civil War. Since, since the Civil War. I think that is entirely mm. accurate. Uh, you were prime minister from 2015 to 2018. Rupert Murdoch is, he runs a media empire. Sure. But he, what he does is very political. He was involved even in your ouster. Yeah, well, Mur Rupert Murdoch actually was, his media organisation was very involved in the right-wing coup that brought my leadership down. Rupert himself was was very actively involved. In fact, he approached another media proprietor, Kerry Stokes, and said, you know, we've got to get rid of Malcolm. Yeah. Stokes said, that's crazy. Why would we want to do that? And Rupert said, Stokes actually said to him, he said, but if we do that, the Labor Party will win the election. Right. And which Rupert said three years of Labor wouldn't be so bad. He was determined to get rid of me. Yeah. And, it, it, and I think largely because I wasn't deferential enough to it. Not you know? compliant. He, see, he's, see Rupert, Rupert is a narcissist. He's vain. This is why he can't bring himself to say that he believed Trump's lies, by the right. way. Because he's he even doesn't though, want to seem stupid. He doesn't want to seem stupid. Yeah. And he is addicted to power for its own sake. And yeah. he likes people. So he knew. He sat he sat with me and my wife Lucy, with Jerry Hall actually, and in our flat, and told us what an utterly unfit person Trump was to be president. We sat down, he talked, this is before Trump yeah. was, was elected, obviously. Because uh, he knew Trump. I mean, he knew Trump sure. really well. But once he saw Trump could win, yeah. he thought, I can have a guy in the White House that will take my calls, that will suck up to me and flatter me. And I've been with Donald and Rupert Murdoch, and I have never seen a politician suck up to Rupert the way Trump did. And I've seen uh, dozens and dozens of politicians with Murdoch over the nearly 50 years I've known him. Interesting. So it was a, you know, it's ultimately, yes, it's ideology. Sure. I think his son Lachlan is, is much more genuinely ideologically right-wing than Rupert. Sure. But for Rupert, what makes him, what, get, you know, gets him out of bed in the morning is power. Yeah. For its own sake. You know, there is always a question with Donald Trump of whether he believes the things that come out of his mouth. He doesn't seem to have much self-control, so you have to assume he does. Does Rupert Murdoch believe the things that come out of Fox News, the racism, well, we the misogyny, he... the hate? Is that who he is? Look, I think he's, his, his genuine political views are more right-wing. Uh, I mean, in his youth, he was, you know, he was, he was more progressive, but as he's got older and he spent more time in America, yeah. he's become more right-wing. Uh, but he clearly, he clearly doesn't believe all the stuff that's on Fox. He doesn't and we believe see this from Trump. the depositions, right? Yeah, exactly. and, he yeah. and so, yeah. so, so this, is, this is pretty wild, isn't it? I mean, how cynical can you get to yeah. be going out there with the biggest megaphone in the country telling the American people that the government has been stolen when you know it's a lie. That you have. And, and now they're going to potentially face the financial consequences because after Dominion, Smartmatic, which is the other company that was mm. accused of stealing the election, are yeah. right behind them waiting to see how many billions uh, Dominion uh, potentially gets. Uh, former Australian prime minister and podcast host now, <laughs> uh, Malcolm Turnbull. I can't wait to listen to your podcast. Thank you so much for coming well, thank down. Thank you, Joy. It's so good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, up next on The Readout, Republicans quietly stand their ground on 
on guns and abortion, despite the unpopularity of their positions with American voters, especially the younger ones. The readout continues after this. Thank you. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today is the first day of the NRA's annual convention, with thousands expected to attend, including 2024 Republican hopefuls like Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Well, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott are sending in video messages. And for the second year in a row, this convention is happening just days after the country was rocked by yet another mass shooting. Last year, it was Uvalde. This year, it's Nashville and Louisville. It's also taking place in Indianapolis, the same city where exactly two years ago tomorrow, a shooter went into a FedEx facility and killed eight people. In fairness, at this point, these tragedies are so commonplace in America, it would be nearly impossible to find a date that wouldn't immediately follow a mass shooting. But the convention also comes after a week where the country saw firsthand just how important this issue of gun violence is to Americans. Over the past 10 days, we've seen nationwide protests and student walkouts, as well as the outpouring of support for three Tennessee lawmakers who were expelled by Republicans, literally just for calling for common sense gun reform. Despite all that, not to mention the polls and the elections and the people repeatedly telling politicians this is what they care about. The Republican Party seems to be just blatantly ignoring them and instead crawling back to the NRA. And it's not just guns. It's also abortion, climate change and LGBTQ rights. Republicans cannot seem to read the room. They are clearly on the losing side of the issues that matter to a majority of voters, especially young voters. And none of them seem to care, perhaps because they have amassed so much power in state legislatures and in the courts. They don't think they have to. Joining me now is Olivia Giuliana, political strategy uh, coordinator for, at Gen Z for Change, and Victor Shi, co-host of iGen of the iGen Politics podcast. Thank you both for being here. You are you are going to be my focus group on uh, what young America is, is is thinking when they watch these politicians. Just pretend that the young people who are outside of their chambers protesting and yelling and screaming, am I next? Please do something about gun reform. Just aren't there. Olivia, why do in your perception, do they just ignore y'all? I mean, I wish I could say that there's some grand plan that they have about why they ignore us. But honestly, I just think that they're stupid. I think they have no real policy agenda. And I think they're used to this good old boys game of buying elections or funding people who should not have government elected offices. And they continue to undermine us. They continue to, to ignore our voices. But I think that they know that it's a problem. 
And those aren't my words. Those are the words of former Republican governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, who, after we just flipped the Wisconsin Supreme Court, said verbatim, young voters are the issue. Those are his words, a former governor, in response to young voters having mass turnout in a spring election, which is something that we don't traditionally see in this country and I think is a marker of the tide turning. Uh, and, and, you know, to people like Scott and to these Republicans who think this, young voters are not the issue. Young voters are the solution to the problem that is the MAGA-ruled Republican Party. And we've consistently made that clear in these elections where they expect us not to turn out. They expect their far-right base, their predominantly older white male base, to carry them through. And time and time again, they continue to fall short. And that will keep happening until they decide to finally listen to what young voters have to say. You know, Victor, you, you tweet about this a lot, and, and, and I think it's true that you're seeing as young voters start to participate more, because it is like, you know, the, the old folks, the Gen X and older are like, the young people don't vote anyway. You don't have to listen to them. And now that you start to see this huge turnout that Olivia was talking about, the response of Republicans has not been to moderate their policies. It's been to suppress young voters. It's yeah. to say, get rid of drop boxes because young people disproportionately use them. Mess around with the voter registrations and kick people off like they do in Georgia and just do everything they can to to make it harder for young people to vote. So that's their response. Their response is to say, we're just not going to let y'all vote at all. Exactly. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, literally the day after the 2022 midterm elections, you saw Republicans come out and literally say they wanted to see the voting age raised to 21, yet they still allow uh, 18-year-olds to buy assault weapons. I mean, the priorities are wrong on every single level. And like uh, Olivia said, Republicans, I think, are stupid, but they're also terrified. They wouldn't be doing this if they didn't didn't think that we were uh, a political threat to their uh, message and, and also their ability to stay in power. And so you have a bunch of Republicans now literally trying to suppress us in states like Texas, Florida, increasing the requirements for voting ID laws, um, making it harder for us to vote on campus. All of these things are trying to be geared to really get us to stay home. But it's not going to work because young people are out there. We're protesting. I think come 2024, you're going to see young people really turn out like never before because we are angry and we're pissed off. And I think Republicans should definitely take note of that. You know, Olivia, the the thing is, is that young voters have to come out in numbers that overcome voter suppression, which is what black voters have had to do for generations, right? You know, you're going to suppress a certain percentage of us, so we have to come out in bigger numbers. Black women and, and, you know, increasingly black men do that. But young voters have traditionally voted at very low levels, typically. But now what you're seeing, the polls show the anxiety level among young people, just about gun violence alone, the anxiety level uh, among young people, given the fact that a large percentage of young people will never make it to 40. 58 percent, according to the Institute of Politics, exhibit this anxiety just about gun violence. Uh, There is a poll that says a percentage of young people that will not ever make it to 40 um, as children is like relatively high. And so when you see that anxiety, does that start to translate among people you know into actual voting? Is that connection being made? Absolutely. And it's not it's not just about gun violence. And we're talking about what motivates young voters. Armalite rifles, AR-15s aren't the only thing that is putting Americans in fear of being killed. It's the assault on the Republic that we're seeing where we have democratically elected legislators being removed for standing with young people in Tennessee. It's the attack on reproductive freedom that we're seeing with people like Ron DeSantis signing abortion bans in the dead of night so he can go on a book tour because he wants to be president. It's the active radicalization that we see of courts across the country with this judge from my home state of Texas who was a Trump appointee ruling that a drug that the FDA has ruled is safe should not be legal. 
It is a slurry of issues, these AR issues that the Republican Party has decided to take up that doesn't just motivate young people in terms of striking fear in us. It makes us angry. It makes us determined. And I promise it is my life's work, my life's mission, and my American dream that the Republican Party truly realizes and understands what they have done and what they have created among young people in this country. We're not yeah. going to back down. We're not going to shy away from this fight. And I promise you that they will know that that's true come 2024. You know, Victor, you can tell what Olivia's saying is true in that, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis was so happy. He went on Fox News and did an exclusive when he signed his anti-voter bill. But when he did this six-week abortion ban, he sent like an email or a tweet. Like he didn't make a big deal out of it the same way because he knows it's unpopular. They know that attacking trans kids and track and attacking LGBTQ people and attacking history books is unpopular. How is it that young voters can get them to pay for it because they are doing it and what they're getting as a reward are more Marjorie Taylor Greens because their people always turn out to vote. I think the challenge going forward right now is really making sure that Democrats highlight the contrast in 2024. You have a clear contrast between what Democrats are doing and what Republicans are doing. And just like you said, Ron DeSantis thought he could get away with this by signing this bill at 11 p.m. Eastern time last night. But people are paying attention. You have students across the state of Florida protesting and doing walkouts um, this week and over the weekend and I think next week as well. But you have young voters really paying attention to this. And I think it's up to Democrats to make 2024. It's not a referendum. It's going to be a choice between a party that actually cares about young people and their safety and their rights and a party that doesn't. And I think the clearer and the uh, starker that Democrats can make that, the more it'll reach young people. I think it'll really show young people what the two parties are all about. You have one party that is completely disintegrated its responsibility from actually caring about young people. And I think you're seeing the response right now with Florida and also in Tennessee, where young people are not here for it. We're going to turn out and we are going to support the party that actually cares about it. And just like Olivia said earlier, you saw it in Wisconsin. I think if Democrats can run on that message of making sure that we highlight that contrast, I think it'll really show uh, young people uh, the difference between the two parties. Uh, look at this screen, uh, America. This is what my good friend Tiffany Cross always calls the rising majority, because the generation uh, of my two guests here is the most diverse generation, uh, and they are an activist generation, and they're not playing. And also, don't fight them on Twitter. You know what's going to happen to you. You saw what Olivia will be doing to these people who try to mess with her on Twitter. Leave them alone. Olivia Juliana, Victor Shee, they're both incredible on social media as well, so leave them alone. Thank you both. And on deck next, celeb uh, celebrating Jackie Robinson Day with an inspiring visit to the Jackie Robinson Museum in New York City with remarkable insights from his youngest son. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.
if American history could be captured in a single life, look no further than Jackie Robinson, the Hall of Famer who integrated Major League Baseball on April 15, 1947, wearing the number 42. Now, every April 15th, which is tomorrow, the MLB, along with millions of fans worldwide, celebrate Jackie Robinson Day. We spoke to Jackie Robinson's son, David Robinson, and the president of the Jackie Robinson Foundation about the American icon and why his legacy beyond baseball resonates today. It is a moment frozen in the annals of history. Jackie Robinson breaking baseball's long-held color line by stepping onto Ebbets Field in Brooklyn on April 15, 1947, becoming the first black American to play Major League Baseball in the 20th century. But it is the scope of his life, not just that moment, that truly encapsulates modern American history, the indignities black people suffered, but also the progress and promise of integration. It was a life that began in 1919 when Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born in post-Reconstruction Georgia under the horrors of Jim Crow. His grandmother was born a slave. His mother was a sharecropper. So he, we knew through his history, which was our family's history, which is our race's history. We got to sit down with David Robinson at the Jackie Robinson Museum in New York City a space that chronicles his father's trailblazing achievements against the backdrop of U.S. history. My father was a man of, of few words and very strong actions, but he was very impactful in, in, a, in a very modest number of words. And it really, he, uh, I think we learned as much by his example as we did by what he said. David's recollections come as education is under threat. It is also why museums like this one could be one of the final frontiers for true accounts of our past. The museum is part of the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which was established in 1973 by Jackie's wife, Rachel, who last year turned 100 years young. The museum's president and CEO, Della Britton, wanted the exhibits to showcase the full breadth of Robinson's legacy. This is Rachel Robinson, who is the, not only his wife, a uh, lifelong uh, partner and love of his life, uh, and that was mutual. We heard the stories all the time about their being, uh, having to, when they went down south for the first time and were, were taken off the airplane and then had to go to the first spring training on the back of a bus. Jack and Rachel Robinson come from a history of African-American struggle and protest and, and standing up for, for civil rights. It was a fantastic pair. The Jackie Robinson Museum opened in 2022. Expect to see the awards, the stats and jerseys, but also the stories off the playing field, like how Jackie, a U.S. Army lieutenant before his baseball career, was arrested and court-martialed for refusing to move to the back of a military bus. This was 11 years before the world would know Rosa Parks, which is why Martin Luther King Jr. would later call Robinson a sit-inner before the sit-ins, a freedom rider before the freedom rides. Yet the racial taunts, the slurs, were endless. This anonymous hate letter, years into Robinson's career, threatening to lynch him if he played. Upon retiring from the game, Robinson entered the public affairs and corporate worlds, 
when fire hoses and police dogs were unleashed on young black people protesting racial segregation. Jackie Robinson felt the call to do something about it. I don't like these big teeth that I see on these dogs. I don't like to see the fierce expressions of the policemen in Birmingham, Alabama. And I don't like to read about pregnant women being poked in the stomach by policemen and their nightsticks. And I don't like to see young Negro kids of seven, eight, nine years old being thrown across the street by the force of a, a fire hose. But I believe that I must go down and say to the people down there, thank you for what you're doing, not only for me and my children, but I believe for America. Jackie decided he really was going to make one of his platforms on his civil rights route economic empowerment. And he often said the ballot and the buck are the two most important things for um, advancement of, of, of my community. Jackie Robinson made his last public appearance during the 1972 World Series, his one last message for baseball, to integrate the managerial ranks. He died of a heart attack 10 days later at the age of 53. 50 years since his death, the battles against anti-blackness remain central to America's story. And the culture war has entered the classroom, where conservatives are banning the stories of Jackie Robinson and other black icons. But baseball's great experiment endures. Sometimes we fear, uh, as human beings, facing uh, a, a difficult truth. Um, but that's the only way that we're going to be able to develop a plan for moving forward as one nation is if we honestly uh, uh, deal with uh, African-American history. Those are all, um, as you say, truths that we have to deal with. Those truths are black history, which is American history, to be studied, celebrated and preserved. And that is perhaps the key message of the great museum he and Rachel built. Thanks so much to Della Britton and all of the team at the Jackie Robinson Museum, David Robinson, Rachel Robinson, and big ups to Kai Ma, the amazing producer of that segment and the awesome crew who shot that package. Thank you all. And up next, The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper joins us to play Who in the Week and also to share his thoughts on Clarence Thomas, Ron DeSantis, Tuckums, and more. We'll be right back. Another day, another story of Clarence Thomas grifting in plain sight. Since last week, when ProPublica reported that Justice Thomas has been luxury globetrotting with Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow and not disclosing it, we've learned some interesting things about his billionaire benefactor, Buddy. Harlan Crow is a prolific collector of Hitler artifacts. His collection includes two of Hitler's paintings and a signed copy of Mein Kampf, among other assorted memorabilia. The billionaire's Dallas mansion also boasts a garden full of statues of 20th century dictators, such as Joseph Stalin. Totally normal stuff. Meanwhile, this week, we learned about another questionable financial transaction between Crow and Thomas. According to ProPublica, in 2014, Crow purchased three properties in a residential neighborhood in Savannah, Georgia, for more than $130,000. The properties belonged to Thomas's relatives including Justice Thomas's elderly mother's home, which Crow still owns. A Watergate-era law requires justices and other officials to disclose real estate sales over $1,000, which Thomas reportedly never did. Justice Thomas did not respond to questions about it. But Harlan Crow said that he purchased Thomas's mother's house so that he could preserve it for posterity. You know, like a signed copy of Mind Kampf, I guess. 
Joining me now is Jordan Klepper, who is a guest who is guest hosting The Daily Show all next week, which should be a lot of fun. Jordan, I have to tell you, normally when, when, when black folk make it, the first thing we say is I'm going to buy my mama a house. It is, it is, of all the, all the things that seem really odd and, and corrupt about this, the fact that Clarence Thomas didn't buy his own mama her house and that he let his billionaire friend do it, for whatever reason, is the thing that's sitting weirdly in my spirit at this moment. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I don't know why else you would have a billionaire friend if you didn't ask them to buy your parents a home. <laughs> that, would be, that would be step number one for me. I, I look at this story and I think this is part of the reason we have to tax the super rich. Yeah. They don't know what to do with their money. They're just buying <laughs> houses for folks. They're buying Nazi paraphernalia. I think yeah. the thing that stands out to me is also the excuses around this. Apparently, those statues in the backyard were there yeah. to remind him mm. of uh, the dangers of power gone unchecked, which <laughs> all he really would need to do is turn and look at the Supreme Justice he invited <laughs> over and bought a house for. There's a living monument standing right next to you. It, 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 there you go. I mean, it, it's weird. Well, Fox News isn't really talking about it much, weirdly enough. I don't know why. Uh, but they're, they're more interested in doing things like yelling at Justin Pearson for going to college, apparently, and running for uh, student government. And like, the th- I have to just play this for you because it is so awful. Th- this is just a little bit of, of Tucker Carlson's recent rant about Justin Pearson. Take a listen. He transitioned from a crypto white kid into the modern incarnation of Martin Luther King Jr. himself. It's remarkable, really. You never see politicians transition into, say, Malcolm X. Why is that? Maybe because Malcolm X didn't talk like a sharecropper. There's so much racism in there, I don't even know what to do. Um, but the brain bleach that I used after I heard that rant today was just to remember that Tucker Carlson masqueraded as somebody who should be on Dancing with the Stars and was a, as a flamenco dancer, essentially. So he didn't see any irony in the fact that he attempted to seem um, like a dancing fool rather than just the fool he actually is. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, there seems to be a real fear of any kind of transitioning over in the Tucker camp. <laughs> I, mean, I, I look at that and again, it, it feels like any uh, any finger that he points points right back at him. I think the thing that stood out for me this week was Tucker Carlson sitting across from Donald Trump um, sycophantically telling his viewers to pay attention to this man. And next week there will be a Dominion lawsuit showing the text and how he really feels about it. And so yet again, this seems to be another example of like when they're calling something else out, they seem to be obfuscating the obvious truth that they're hiding. Yeah, I mean, the or, you know, the fact that he begged Hunter Biden to help his little son get into Georgetown and that he himself only got into college because his girlfriend's father was rich and connected. So he couldn't even get into college on his own. But he has a lot to say about other people's college experiences. Tell me what you think about Ron DeSantis, because the thing that annoys me about the way he's covered is that people only seem to. The pundit world only cares about, will he attack Donald Trump? Does he attack Donald Trump? How is he attacking Donald Trump? Other, you know, they're not paying attention to, I don't know, the attacks on black history, the attacks on LGBTQ folks and, folks, and now the fact that he's literally, like, attacking women by passing a six-week abortion ban in the dead of night. Well, yeah, it's scary what's happening in Florida. I actually spent a little time in Hungary doing a special a few months back. Um, and some of the things we saw happening there under the Orban regime suddenly were seen echoed in Florida. And this recent six week abortion ban is, is scary stuff. Uh, I know people are, are frightened by what is happening and happening in the dark of night as well. I think he announced it at 11 p.m. last night, which in Florida, people go to bed at six. That's like 3 a.m. and nothing good happens in the middle of the night. I think it, <laughs> 
It only speaks to even these these dastardly moves that he's taking down in Florida. Even he's not proud of these. He knows these aren't popular. They aren't serving his constituents. And that's why they're even happening secretly. It seems and like lack also, of knowledge or lack of understanding is sort of the game plan down there. Well, and, and Fort Lauderdale is literally flooding. And apparently he doesn't care about that and has not called the mayor of Fort Lauderdale because he doesn't care. Um, you're going to be on next week uh, hosting The Daily Show. You do one of the greatest things you do is go out and talk to Trump folks out in the real world. I know you were out there talking to some of them on the day Trump was arraigned. What did you hear back? Uh, how incoherent was it on a scale of one to extremely incoherent? Well, it was in New York, so it was direct, to say the very least. Um, Fair. And I think in New York, you have the MAGA supporters were defensive. They were outnumbered by reporters. And then suddenly George Santos ran through trying to get attention. So just when I thought I'd seen the circus, the circus continues to expand in ways I, I wouldn't imagine. But what you would imagine is the response. The MAGA faithful weren't at all cowered by the idea of Donald Trump being arrested. He was innocent, and this only made him stronger. But that being said, it was a small group of MAGA faithful. Yeah. Do you get the sense, because you talk to so many Trump supporters around the country, that the Dominion, you know, revelations about how much those hosts actually hate them, do you think that's going to impact those people at all that you've met along the way? No, I mean, I think like I think the worldview has been established for the true MAGA faithful. And I think any story that kind of challenges that worldview is immediately seen as distrustful um, and not not to be at all taken into consideration. I think this this grievance culture uh, is very much a part of the whole Trump narrative. And so this does make him stronger in the eyes of those faithful. I think what is more curious to me is that 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 moderation, those folks in the middle, I think, are paying attention. Um, I haven't seen the numbers recently. The rallies have been have been different. They haven't quite been as as big and as wild as the past ones have been. So yeah. I don't doubt that the MAGA faithful are still where they were four years ago. It's the ones who are, are questioning, who are watching what's happening in Florida and seeing if there's an off ramp. Yeah. Uh, two words, Bud Light. Your thoughts on the rights freak out about Bud Light doing a, I guess, too gay friendly can. And now apparently there's a right winger here. He is online or here he is on screen who's selling his own better beer, which is not woke. And I guess tastes different. I, mean, I think <laughs> I think if you're truly offended by the tiniest gesture of inclusivity, then thank God you're choosing to sober up. <laughs> Great news for everybody. Uh, in fact, I, I saw people online who were so angry they're ripping down Bud Light paraphernalia, uh, signs, posters, <laughs> things from inside. And in my head, I'm like, this guy is becoming so much more uh, affable. His house looks great. Thank God. Like this, there's, there's, there's a lot of positive things. We're going to have a sober culture, a more inclusive culture, and interior designing is through the roof. So this, I don't think Bud Light is hurting from this. I don't think Bud Light is hurting from this. And no one's going to buy that janky alternative version of Bud Light. It's, but everything is a grift. It's always a grift. All right. Jordan Klepper is staying with me. It's a hostage situation at this point. And coming up... There he is, President Joe Biden, Bidening in Ireland. He is clearly winning at life, but did he win the week? We will answer after this short break. We made it to the end of another week, thank God, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, there's the music. Who won the week? Back with 
me is Jordan Klepper, who is next week's guest host of The Daily Show. Jordan Klepper, host of The Daily Show for the following week. Who won the week? <laughs> Other than you. <laughs> uh, I'm giving it to Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, a shout out to my home state governor. Uh, I actually got to spend a little time with her this week. We did an interview. It's going to be on The Daily Show this upcoming week. And that is a state... That has a lot of hunters in it, uh, but there's a lot of people. Most of the people in Michigan want common sense gun reform passed, yeah. and they passed legislation this week. And it gives me a, a sense of hope that when you see a tragedy like MSU take place, and then you see action taken to to deal with that tragedy, uh, it's politics moving in the right direction. Amen, amen, amen. Well, yours is a very serious and very important one. My Who on the Week is just fun. It is the Republicans. It is my favorite new follow on Instagram. You can see on your screen Clarence Thomas, Claretta Corrupta, Mike Pence, Mother Pence, Mitch McConnell, Anita Filibust, her McConnell, and Ron DeSantis, a.k.a. Ron DeSantis. The account was created March 30th. It now has 158,000 followers, including myself, created by Craig and his husband, Stephen, who are just trying to give people a little bit of a fun, a little bit of fun and a few laughs in a time when we need them, as do you, my friend. Jordan Klepper, thank you very much. Good luck next week. That is tonight's readout. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.